Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. There are many different paths you can take, but there's only one road to Atlanta. Drive deep out to left field. He clubbed it. Brady twisting and turning, looking up and giving up. It's a home run for Danby Swanson. Flair out towards shallow right. That's big trouble. Albies going back. He dives and he makes the catch. What a play, Ozzie Albies. Swanson is headed for three. He'll try for it inside the parker. Relay throw comes toward the plate. He'll score standing, and it's his second inside the park home run of the season. This is your weekly podcast dedicated to the Atlanta Braves farm system. Follow the show on Twitter at Road, the number two, Atlanta. Now, hit the road with your hosts, Eric Cole, Gaurav Vidak, and Garrett Spain. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Road to Atlanta, a podcast devoted solely to the Braves farm system and Braves prospects. I am one of your hosts, Eric Cole. Uh, you know me from my work over on Talking Chop or on Twitter at Leprechaun with a K. Joining me are Matt Powers, who you can find on Twitter at MattPowers31, and Gaurav Vidak, who you can find on Twitter at GVDAC, uh, where we talk about baseball constantly. But you're not really here to listen to us this evening. Uh, it took a little doing because, uh, to be honest, I don't think that he likes us as much anymore, but we did manage <laughs> to find him. Uh, and uh, Carlos Colazzo, the draft guru over at Baseball America, took the time. He's a, a Took the time to talk to us. He's a Talking Chop alum, uh, and as a result, he's contractually obligated to at least talk to us once a week or so. Mm-hmm. And we're we're taking this opportunity to uh, use one of our our Carlos coupons to have him on the podcast. Carlos, how are you, man? I'm doing great. Yeah, I think uh, I think because I used to to write for Talking Chop, you guys you guys can basically get me on the pod whenever you want. So I appreciate you having me on. Happy to be here. I know you guys are uh, draft nuts as much as anyone else in the country. So this will be fun. I'm looking forward to it. We 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 missed you over a talking shop, man. I mean, it's just it's, I know Brad does too, and he, I I know I got a hint of jealousy out of Brad when I'm like, hey, Carlos is coming on the podcast, man. He's like, oh, that that's fine. No, it's cool. Yeah, well, I'm jealous. I think I stopped writing for Talking Chop right around when they started to finally get good. So you guys are actually covering a really good team and a really good farm system now. Um, meanwhile, I was watching Matthew Whistler throw every day. So. To be fair, Carlos, you did love yourself some Matt Whistler too. Huh? I still do. I will never, <laughs> I will never throw him under the bus. Except actually, I just did, but you know, <laughs> maybe <still> a little <laughs> bit. Uh, all right. Uh, well, the way we're going to do this, bud, is just we, we made a list of questions that we want to make sure we ask. We're going to take turns doing it. Um, and the first question is going to come from me: is that the draft is upon us? I mean, it really feels like it snuck up on us this year, mm-hmm. where it's you know we're like a week and a half out to you know a little bit more than that maybe. And eleven days, Eric. Eleven, 11 days. days. That's that's wild to me. Like it feels like usually like I feel like there's a a, a heftier lead up to it. And we've been like still doing a lot of writing about it, but it just feels like it's kind of popped up really quick on us. And so the first question I wanted to ask is what is the area of strength in this draft in terms of like position and demographic and what is mm-hmm. the biggest area of weakness that you see? 
think the the weakness is the easiest question to answer there. Uh, we've written about it a few times over at Baseball America. It's the college pitching. It's the high school pitching, uh, kind of the pitching across the board. I think this is the first year we've ever not had a pitcher uh, of either the college or the high school level um, not ranked in the top five, I believe. The first pitcher on our board right now is all the way down at number eight. Uh, JJ was telling me that, that that's never happened. Uh, and as far as drafts go, there's only been, I think the lowest a, a pitcher has ever gone is number six. Um, so it's definitely weak, both at the top and on depth in the pitching class. The strength is probably, um, there's a lot of corner bats on the college side. There are also a lot of really interesting college shortstops. Now a lot of those college shortstops have underperformed, or at least a few of them have this spring. Um, but there's some impact talent to be had at the top in college hitters. Um, and there are a number of shortstops. So if you had to pick one demographic, I would say shortstops, just kind of college and high school, because two of the high school shortstops really help out for a few of some of those college shortstops, like a, a Will Holland or a Greg Jones, who maybe haven't performed as well as scouts would have liked this season. I can see that. And it's, it's, it's a weird year because I agree that just like the pitching's just so bad, particularly on the college side. You just, yeah. that's like, that's what, that's the thing that teams want the most, right? Just like mm-hmm. pitching that will be there in a year or two. And there's just not a lot of those arms. And the arms that are available, like they have some warts. Like there's like some real concern. There's risk involved with a lot of those guys like Lodolo or, or even like a Manoa or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Garav, you're up, bud. So anyone listening here, uh, let me go ahead and say if you, feel or hear any animosity, it's because Carlos said I was plopped from the office the other day, so we're feuding right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I got the uh, junior comp just uh, to I'm a, just I'm a professional. <laughs> I'm a professional, so I can get through this. Uh, Carlos, so a bunch of mocks going back. We've seen a lot of variation from who the Braves would select, but the general consensus, mm-hmm. not, maybe not the general consensus, but the, the main pattern being, you know, college bats were being mm-hmm. at play at nine. Uh, is, is that kind of what the, the feeling you're getting? And then, like, at, when it comes to, like, uh, the number 21 pick, uh, mm-hmm. is it just kind of see, like, best player available type thing? Yeah, I think so. Um, lately, we've got some whispers that there's a pitcher that they like. We can talk about that a little bit more if you guys want. But I, I think there is a sense from a lot of people around the industry that the want to go after a bat. Um, we'll have a mock draft tomorrow, and I think a lot of Braves fans might be excited. I don't know how much I can can tease here, um, but they're going to have some good talent to pick from. They're they're probably in that range, right, where the kind of the elite guys of the draft are going to be gone, most of them. Uh, but they're going to be some really good guys to pick. Um, how kind of how we see sh- things shaping out right now? I think I would probably at this point bet on a hitter, just because of how the board seems to be shaping out now. Um, but Jackson Rutledge is a name that has got a lot of attention in that kind of 8, 9, 10, 11 range, and I think the Braves are definitely a team who would be interested uh, in taking a pop at him, depending on, on how it unfolds, but there are also a lot of bats there. Hunter Bishop is a guy. Corbin Carroll is a high school guy that they've scouted extensively. I know uh, a lot of Braves fans weren't too excited when we mocked Shea Langoliers there, uh, I think, in our in our last mock, but he's a guy who's kind of improved his stock uh, this season after after dealing with an injury uh, kind of early on in the spring. So, uh, yeah, I think I would still lean towards a hitter, but the, there's a college pitching group there as well that, that could make things interesting. Well, and so when you mentioned Rutledge, is that the pitcher mm-hmm. that you're talking about that they have some interest in? Yeah, uh, yeah Jackson okay. Rutledge. So he's a San Jacinto, Texas Juco 
right-hander. I mean, if you just go pure stuff, I think he compares with with anyone in the class. Daniel Espino on the prep side probably has him, but on the college side, it's him and Alec Manoa for the best pure stuff. I mean, he's a six foot eight, two hundred and sixty pound monster, and he went out and shoved this season, held upper nineties velocity deep into outings, flashed a pair of two, a pair of uh, plus breaking balls, showed some feel for a changeup. But it, he is an absolute monster. If you've seen his his delivery, kind of his arm action, it's an unbelievably short arm action for a guy of that size, and I think that that has kind of helped him improve his control. Previously, he had some control issues, but. He's a guy who kind of shot up immediately after his first or second start this spring and has just steadily climbed boards, uh, especially with kind of this pitching class that we're talking about. It's allowed uh, a Juco pitcher to rise up the ranks. He could be the highest drafted Juco pitcher this century if he goes where we expect him to go. I mean, he's definitely a guy that seems, sounds like he has a lot of helium. There's a, there's a few mm-hmm. guys that seem to be climbing, climbing boards a little bit, but we're still kind of getting information as to what guys' preferences are, and there seems to be enough uncertainty after like, like right around from like the third pick through the eighth pick. It's kind mm-hmm. of hard to tell where, how it's all going to shake out, right? Um, but okay, this is the part where I have to let Matt ask about Daniel Espino. Uh, <laughs> uh so, <laughs> alright, Matt, go ahead, bud. So I'm going to ask a question that nobody expects me to ask at this point. Anyone that's listened to us will know, obviously, Daniel Espino has some of the best class, stuff in this class. Mm. And you had him with the best fastball, third best breaking ball in the class in the prep side last week. In the rankings and mocks, the that does not actually match up with where he would actually rank stuff-wise, mm. as he's more of a bottom-of-the-first-round guy based on that. What are your thoughts on him, and why is this more about the risk of him being a hard-throwing prep right-handed pitcher or more teams seeing reliever risk? Yeah, so I think uh, early on in this kind of draft cycle, we had Daniel Espino, I think even throughout this spring a little bit earlier, we had him uh, as one of the top prep pitchers. I think there are a cluster of three or four high school pitchers above him now. Uh, we have him 26, which would put him at the back of the first round. I mean, like you said, you can't argue with this stuff. It is impactful, pure stuff. But uh, throughout the spring, as we kind of continue to do more calls, more and more scouts were like, hey, uh, Espino needs to slide down a little bit. Uh, the control isn't where it needs to be. There's significant reliever risk. Um, a lot of scouts and the upper-level decision-makers are concerned with the arm action. It's a long arm action. Uh, he does a really good job, I will say, of coming through on time. With that arm action, his lower half, Matt, I'm sure you've talked about this before and you notice that his lower half is extremely elite uh, with how he kind of gets his body off the mound and uses that to, to kind of drive everything else in his delivery. Uh, it's extremely impressive, maybe the most impressive lower half I've ever seen. But when you just talk to people in the industry, um, they don't value those shorter right-handed pitchers that throw that hard because the track record of those pitchers is just so bad. Whether it's injury, whether it's the fact that when you put these guys on a pro schedule where they're pitching once every five days rather than once every 10 days or even more than that, the stuff doesn't hold up. Uh, oftentimes, they're throwing as hard as they ever will as high schoolers, and they just can't do that on a pro schedule. Uh, the reliever risk is there just because the size, the arm action, the control. Uh, I think it's easy to kind of fall in love with a, with a guy in high school because, honestly, all of these high school kids – should be dominating the competition. Their stuff is better. If we're talking about a pitcher who's going in the first round, none of the high school batters they're facing should be able to handle them. Um, and so the swing and miss that Espino gets with kids chasing his slider, which is very good, and his curveball out of the zone, 
once you face hitters that are more advanced and can lay off those pitches, you're going to need to have more refined control to kind of work with your stuff and get better hitters out. He has plenty of talent, and he probably still has some of the highest upside in the class when you're talking about pitchers. But if you just look at what the industry has done with that, what they've started to kind of course correct for that track record, uh, he's a little bit lower down for our rankings. Still a first-round pick. All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to interject here so Matt doesn't start shouting at you. And, uh... <laughs> no, feel free. We can go back and forth. It's fine. It's an interesting discussion to be had because I think it's something where if you have Daniel Espino a few years ago, he would be kind of in that top 10 range, whereas now uh, you have some track record and some teams are a little bit more worried about that early velocity to kind of I... change the mindset. I do agree that probably, you know, like, you know, probably only like five years ago, a guy with that kind of velocity, mm-hmm. I mean, coming I mean, out of high school. look at the Riley Pints of the world. Yeah. I mean, well, Riley wasn't exactly a small guy, let's be, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but sure. you're, the point, the point is made and, and it's, it's interesting because it's hard. It's really easy to fall in love with his stuff. And well, yeah. honestly, and honestly, you know, it, it's not like it's impossible for him to beat, you know, to beat the odds in terms of the guys with that sort of track record. Mm-hmm. And like, we, we like him a lot. Uh, but at the same time, like it's under it's understandable that that's kind of what teams are kind of hedging their bets a bit, especially when they, there's a, such depth on the hitting side too. Yeah. Uh, and that that kind of I don't necessarily think that helps Espino's case is that there's a, there's some really good options for position players in general mm-hmm. that they might think might be a little bit safer. Yeah. Um, the next question is from me actually, and that's um, we we kind of know the names that have been associated with the Braves, right? Like we 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 know that Langoliers has been talked about. We know that like Bishop has been on and off, depending on you know what week it is as to whether or not he's actually even going to be there at nine. Uh, there's been a couple other names that have been mentioned there before, but give me like a guy that hasn't really been connected to them yet that is like a dark horse that maybe could like sneak into like that top the like the back end of the top ten and could be in consideration that we're not necessarily thinking would be an option there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another guy who who I've heard kind of higher talked about higher in the in the first round than than what we've had most of the spring is Elon right-hander George Kirby. Um, he's kind of a higher floor pitcher, not in the sense that like he doesn't have any upside, but he's the best strike thrower in the class. Arguably, he's got a very solid delivery and arm action. Uh, he's got a plus fastball, uh, above average breaking balls, depending on the day and kind of how you. Who you talk to on that? I think he needs to maybe refine that and sharpen that up a little bit more. But he's he's one of the safer bets in this class, uh, and he's done really well towards the end. There's been a lot of heat uh, behind the Braves in to see him, so he's a guy who sounds like he's moving up a little bit. Um, and if the Braves are are into that, maybe he's not a guy I would typically associate with the Braves, just because I think they would want some more impact than than what maybe a Kirby his profile would give you. But he's a guy who's been trending up. Um, another guy who. I personally like a lot and is further down on the board, but kind of fits this profile as a college hitter uh, and has some tools that maybe the Braves would like is Logan Davidson, who's a shortstop at Clemson. I got to see him uh, for a few at-bats the other day at the ACC tournament. Uh, he's a six foot three, 195-pound shortstop, switch hitter with some raw power, has had some wood bat struggles in the Cape Cod League, which is kind of why he's not uh, higher up. If he, had, if he had just had average summers in the Cape the past few years, he'd probably be a uh, a no doubt top 10, top 15 talent. He's right outside of that range right now, but I think that might be another dark horse guy. Neither of these guys I've heard directly tied to the Braves, but if you're looking for a dark horse, uh, those two make some sense. All right, Grav, you're up, bud. All right, if Matt can talk about Daniel Espino, I get to talk about my prospect crush, and that's obviously Joe Adele going back to 2017. <laughs> I remember... Him dropping all the way to to ten was just like 
a huge issue for me. I wanted him. But okay, that's that's neither here nor there. My question for you is who's someone in those top eight picks that, you know, could conceivably actually be available for the Braves? Like what you were not gonna get some insane raw elite talent like Joe mm-hmm. Adele, but who is someone who might be available there? Yeah, so we have uh, we've kind of heard consistently that the top six hitters are gonna go in some order. So those guys, just in case you're not aware, haven't been following the mocks. That's Adley Rutschman at Oregon State. Number one, uh, Bobby Witt, number two, uh, Andrew Vaughn, the Cal first baseman, CJ Abrams, Riley Green, um, and then JJ Blade. Those six guys we do not expect to be available, uh, even at seven based on what we're hearing. There's another trio of players who are kind of right behind them. And that's, uh, at least at this point, this is, this is for mock purposes too, not just our, our draft rankings, but kind of the names that we're hearing lately that will follow. Uh, I think Hunter Bishop is one. That's the tools of the Arizona State outfielder that we've we've talked about a little bit. Nick Lodolo, who's actually finished very strong to the season, uh, and outpitched the last guy who's kind of been in this uh, these talks, and that's Alec Manoa, a right-hander at West Virginia. So those are some guys who, and, and and I guess Alec Manoa is a guy who's kind of been outside that range. So so for your question, maybe he doesn't fit there. Um, but those are our three names that have been talked about top 10, and I guess I would have to mention Rutledge as well. But again, Rutledge and Manoa are probably guys that, that you were thinking of as outside that range. So I guess the two is Hunter Bishop and Nick Lodolo. Bishop probably has the best chance to get to number nine, just based on what we're hearing at this point. Um, it sounds like the Reds really like Nick Lodolo. He might have locked himself up in that kind of top six, top seven tier. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're if you're looking for the guy that can fall, really Bishop is the only likely one at this point. Maybe you guys are happy about that. Maybe you're not. I mean, I like, I really like Hunter Bishop. The, we're, mm-hmm. we're actually going to ask a question about him just because, like, he's, his, his performance has been a little uneven. But I know mm-hmm. that, um, Matt has a question before we kind of get into, like, the Hunter Bishop talk because, yeah. honestly, that's a guy that we've kind of fallen in love with a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have some kind of general, like, a kind of a general draft question about strategy and stuff. So go ahead, Matt. Yeah, let's go for it. So I know Texas is one of the teams that's had a little bit more talk with underslot deals so mm-hmm. far in the top 10. But, how do you think that strategy would play this year? Has it become less appealing between the changes that we've seen in the bonus pool system and the fact that the Diamondbacks have so much money to pull that off and keep teams from avoiding that? Or do you think it's something that maybe we see in that uh, 7 to 10 range? See, it definitely is a little bit riskier, especially like you mentioned. I mean, the Diamondbacks have four picks in between a lot of these teams' number one pick um, and their second pick, and that's true for the Rangers. So that would be that would be the one concern that you would have there. The issue is if after this top six tier, or top seven tier, if you include the Dolo in that, after that, if you don't have a ton of separation from the guys you're talking about, maybe you do just go take the guy who's going to give you the biggest discount, and then eventually, inevitably, there is going to be a guy in the draft who falls, whether that's because. He's gone through some teams. The signing bonus wasn't there. He had a higher price tag, and he starts to fall, and then he gets cold feet a little bit. This happens in the draft. I mean, we saw a couple guys in Adam Klofenstein and Mike Siani last year who were who were first-round, supplemental first-round talents that slipped to day two and got popped in the third or fourth round and got some money. Uh, so I think you can do that, and we've seen t- teams do that kind of consistently. Um, if I was picking in that spot personally, I would probably just want to take the best talent available because you've got a top-ten pick. Um, I, I think that's a valuable asset, especially in this draft class. So I would just take whoever's the best talent available. But you're going to see some gamesmanship happen at some point in this class, whether that's 
whether that's with the Rangers, and we've heard those same rumors as well, whether that's uh, a team with some with lower uh, with lower bonus pool money, like a Red Sox or Brewers or something like that, further down the draft now. With the Red Sox, you're not picking for a while, so that gets even even dicier. But um, it's going to happen. It always does. Uh, just kind of depends on and who end up who ends up falling on the board and for what reasons. So I, I have now drawn the straw on asking the Shea Langoliers question because I, he actually interests me a, a mm-hmm. decent bit because he's the college catcher out of Baylor and he's been mentioned as a like a potential target for the Braves or at least a guy that they're considering. Uh, mm-hmm. He's been and he's been kind of getting consideration that like the top ten, top twelve ish range for mm-hmm. for not just not just the Braves, just for a lot of teams. We know that defensively he's very good and we know that in terms of you know being able to call games and pitch framing that he is going to be, he's going to be able to stick behind the plate. Mm-hmm. But what concerns have you heard, if any, about how his bat's going to play and kind of what is his ceiling as an offensive player? Yeah. So really quickly, right before we talk about like his offensive ceiling, Langoliers was a guy that we had kind of as a consensus top 10 talent entering the year before his handmade injury. I think a lot of people are maybe a little bit down on him because when he did get hurt, we slipped him a little bit in the rankings. He went kind of more of a middle of the first round guy, um, but he hit well coming back. So I think, first of all, his first season at Baylor was very impressive. He hit 313, 388, 540 with 10 home runs as a freshman in the Big 12. Uh, so that's pretty impressive. And then he's also had uh, some pretty good summers with the bat as well. He hit really well with um, USA Baseball's college national team last year and was one of the best players on the team before Adley Rutschman showed up uh, and got some playing time near the end. But I think he has a very good a very good uh, offensive tool set. I mean, he's got a solid average hit tool, depending on what you think of him. The 2018 season is, is really what scouts had the big question with him. He hit 252, but his on-base percentage was still good. He still has a very good understanding of the zone um, and didn't have any issues just getting on base while he struggled to, to hit a little bit. But I think you're looking at 55, 50 hit power tools with him. Um, and for a catcher of his defensive ability, that's an extremely valuable player. I can definitely see that. Uh, so he, well, speaking of other guys that were kind of have been linked to the Braves, maybe, or at least being in that range, but might be a little bit different now. Grav has a question about one. Yeah, that's actually really funny because you failed to mention him earlier. Uh, <laughs> early in the, in, the, in the draft process, there was a lot of buzz around like the Braves and someone like Josh Young, and he was like really, you you could see why like uh, I you could see why what he was doing, but his season's been like a little uneven, and he's seen his draft his draft status or his draft status. Yeah, wow, I can't speak apparently. Kind of kind of plummet a bit. Like, mm-hmm. what do you attribute his struggles to, and are they potentially long term problems? I think that most people just expected Young to hit for more power than he's shown this spring. And he started to tap into that a little bit uh, as the season has kind of worn on. But I do know that for, for guys who play in Lubbock, scouts want to see a lot of in-game power. And especially for a guy who's a corner profile bat like Young, and depending on the scout you talk to, he might have to move to first base. And what's interesting with Young is is his defensive reputation has been maybe the most polarizing of any of these prospects. Um, I saw him with Team USA and didn't come away very impressed, but I'm not a scout. I'm not paid to make the evaluation. I just talk to the people who do. Some people think he is could be an above-average defender at third base, and some people think he needs to move to first in the future. So that can radically change, like, your, your like, opinion on what? his. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, like, that's weird. It is. I mean, not all these guys are consensus. And, like, 
I think what is important to point out too is like we're trying to get the industry's consensus. So with a lot of these guys who are who are really polarizing, some teams really like, some teams don't like them that much, so they get pushed to the middle. Uh, I think Espino is another guy who this would fit in. Some teams are really in on him and like him a lot and would probably like him more than where he's ranked. And then some other teams don't like him at all because of the questions that you have about him and would be lower. So like what our list probably does is move those guys closer towards the middle. But I think defensively with Young, you're looking at a guy who isn't the most mobile defender, especially when you're talking about side to side. He is pretty good coming in on the ball. He's got a good arm. You just look at the twitchiness that he has. Uh, and there are a lot of really good major league third basemen. So you look at to have a good defender at third base at the major league level. Uh, some teams are just more strict with what they want to turn in as a third baseman at the amateur level. Uh, and depending on what team you are, you might think that, okay, based on what we've seen with his, his kind of mobility, we do think eventually as he kind of continues to physically develop, we'll need to move to first. And in that case, uh, you want to see a lot more impact with the bat because you're getting obviously less defensive value. So I think that kind of, uh, is a, is a broad overview of what I've dealt with, with, with Josh Young this year. Um, he is a very good hitter. Uh, that's not to take anything away from him. He's hit over 300 each season with Texas Tech, so he has one of the best hit tools, just pure hit tools in the class. Um, but again, I think scouts have just wanted to see a little bit more power than he's shown. All right, Matt, you're up to talk about some college pitching. So, obviously, we talked about this a little bit before, but the college pitching is not great this year. Mm-hmm. And I know we already talked about Lodolo and Manau as two guys that have really stepped up at the top of the class and Rutledge as the top Juco arm who's just below that tier. Mm-hmm. But are there any other names that are seeing their stocks rise because of the desire for college arms and the lack mm-hmm. of depth in that demographic this year? Yeah, I think so. Um, did you include Kirby there? Kirby would be a guy I would just point out. He, he's probably in that same kind of grouping. Um, sure. Matt Cantorino is a guy who's kind of a second tier arm that we've had Pretty consistently in the spot he's at throughout the year. That's the rice pitcher. Uh, he doesn't do it in the uh, the easiest operation, but the stuff is pretty good, uh, and his track record is good as well. There are a couple guys um, from the northern part of the country, and Tommy Henry, the lefty at Michigan, and uh, Drake Jamison, who's a shorter right-handed pitcher from Ball State with an electric arm. Those are two guys who have done really well towards, I mean, really throughout the whole season, but they've had really big crowds um, near the end of the year as well. Those are guys who we have in kind of that 40 to 60 range who, uh, just based on our board, you wouldn't put them in the first round, but if someone did pop them at the back of the first, it wouldn't surprise me at all. There are a number of these guys kind of once you get further down who, I mean, like we talk about with even some of the top guys, they do some things really well, and then they have some questions. So if your team, like for instance with Jay Jameson, because of his size and kind of the fact that he's mostly a two-pitch guy for the most part, there's some reliever risk with him. But if you're a team that believes he's a no-doubt starter, your evaluation of him would be a lot better than maybe where we have him on our board, just kind of based on the industry's consensus. Uh, so those are two. Uh, Noah Song is one who's tricky just because of his military situation. He's the senior at Navy. Um I mean, on talent, he he matches up with all these guys that we're talking about outside of maybe the top three or four um, at the at the very top. But with him, uh, teams are under the impression that he's not going to be able to play in pro ball for two years for his military commitment. So that makes it a little bit dicier. Um, but when you kind of get into this range, you're, you're looking at a lot of guys uh, who have some question marks, who, who don't have a ton of track record starting. Uh, look at kind of the Ryan Nelsons or the Zach Hesses of the world who are probably better in a reliever role. 
Uh, it's not a good class and it falls off quickly, but there are some interesting guys who, who could go up higher. TJ Sycamore, the lefty at Missouri, is another pitcher who, who area scouts seem to love because uh, he just really comes right at batters, changes slots on you. Another guy with some starter reliever questions and, and where you are at on that on that opinion, like whether you think he can start or leave will, de- will depend on where you, you value him in the draft. So I have a question and you, I'll let you kind of decide as to what makes the most sense. Cause I know that for you, a lot of what you're compiling on with your, like your, these big prospect lists, I think you're up to 500 <laughs> with, you're up to 500 with 200, pro, you know, 200 profiles now. Yeah. But, but who are your like, like deep sleepers in this class? I, what I mean is not, we're not talking for my first, second round guys. Like any of these guys that are maybe outside the top 200 on your list that you're yeah. either getting reports that might make you think he's, they're actually much better than that or a guy that mm-hmm. you personally like that is kind of outside that range, mm-hmm. but like hasn't quite gotten the, the scouting reports that you would hope for. Who's that kind of a guy that you like is like really deep sleeper type? Yeah, this is a good question. Uh, some of these guys are kind of going through my head right now. Let me try and pick out a good one. One that I go to a lot, um, I probably lean on this one too much, is Ramsey David. He's a right-handed pitcher out of Georgia. I saw him last fall at Perfect Games Jupiter Showcase, and he showed one of the most consistent amateur sliders I've ever seen as far as kind of spotting that for strikes and consistently uh, throwing the pitch with the same shape and bite Uh you rarely see that from a lot of these amateur kids. Sometimes it'll back up on them. They'll bury it in the dirt. But this kid spotted a slider really well. He's an interesting one. We have him in the uh, early 300s range. Um, let's see. There's another There's another kid, Joshua Rivera at IMG Academy in Florida. He was a guy who we had a lot higher earlier in the year. He had a knee injury over the offseason, um, and he didn't really swing the bat as well as scouts wanted to see. But he's another guy that I saw in the fall that I was really impressed with. He actually played shortstop for his travel ball team and was the co-MVP of that same tournament that I was talking about with Ramsey David. He's got some power potential. He's got some actions that can uh, allow him to be a good defender at third base where he'll probably end up because of his kind of the physical frame that he's working with. Um, Let me see if I can get another one for you here. You guys want a hitter or a pitcher? Whatever. uh, Just go with a hitter. Because we've, we've, we've come to accept that the pitchers are going to be a crapshoot and aren't very good anyway. Well, Brennan Malone is a hitter out of Georgia. I keep going to these Georgia guys. He's in the 100 to 200 range. He's kind of moved up a lot of boards because he's hit really well this spring. Maybe he's not as deep as you want, but uh, a prep shortstop with an offensive-oriented profile might have to move to third. He's a very good hitter. I've heard really good things about him. He would be another one. Oh, I've got one for you. Highland Hall. He is a, uh, a kid, another kid out of Florida. He went to TNXL Academy, but he actually got – Suspended early on in the season and had to move back to uh, his old high school. But he is tooled up. It's unbelievable. He's fast. He could play center field. Needs to improve his route running a little bit. Has lightning quick hands. Has, has some power at the plate. A little bit aggressive right now. But he's a guy that I could see, like, if he takes his development a little bit further, kind of refines his approach at the plate, uh, does some stuff in the outfield, his tool set definitely fits higher than where he's ranked and where, where teams like him just because he hasn't shown it. Uh, but he's a guy that I would I would definitely make a note of and, and kind of see where he goes moving forward. Awesome. All right, Garav, you're up, bud. Yeah. So one recent pretty fast rising player that we've that's created a lot of buzz recently has been has been uh, Brent Batty. I think that's how you pronounce his name, Batty. I'd say Beatty, but you Beatty. could be right. I need to double check that okay. before the draft. Uh. Yeah, he's, he's taken a huge step in the spring, but he's, you know, he's a little older than your typical high school prospect. Uh, how much of his ascension is real and how much do you think of it as him just being a little bit older? 
You mean his ascension, as in like how well he's done this spring, because of his age? Like you're saying, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just that he's older than everyone he's playing against. Exactly. I like, is it because he's just physically more mature, mm-hmm. or you know? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I, I do think it's real. Uh, the age is definitely a factor, and depending on what team you talk to, again, this is kind of a split camp thing. Some of the teams who use um, these models, uh, their models will bang kids based on their age, and Beatty is one of those. Other teams who are maybe a little bit more old school, this will just use the age as maybe a breaker when you're talking about uh, players with kind of um, equal talent. I think Beatty, uh, he is more advanced physically than a lot of these kids, regardless of his age. A couple of years ago, he would have been more advanced than a lot of the hitters in this class as well. He's just a big kid, a big, strong, physical kid. But he's playing against really good competition in Texas. I know um, there are a lot of players who don't face good competition. He is one of the high school kids that's facing really good really good pitching in Austin, Texas. Um, so I, I do think it's real. I think he has one of the better hit and power combos. I mean, in the high school class, he probably has the best hit and power combo. I think Riley Green, depending on what you think of his future power potential, would be the one guy that has the argument for that. Um, but it is real. He's hitting over like 600 this year in Texas against good pitching, and, and he's done some stuff to improve his defensive profile as well. So uh, I do think it's legit. He's one of the guys who's in consideration for the high school player of the year for us. So a quick follow-up of yeah. Beatty and uh, Espino, who is like more of, who's more like Ryan from The Office? Is that super polarizing character <laughs> that, that can really like, you can choose one way or the other. Yeah. I think if, if you're, if you're saying who's the more polarizing prospect, I think it would be Espino just because while teams, uh, like, t- from a team-wide level, value Beatty based on his age differently, I think everyone would tell you that his bat is legit. Um, it's just a matter of where they see that value being worth the pick in the first round, depending on the team. Whereas with Espino, you'll have some guys who think, like, I've gotten Jose Fernandez comps to this kid during the draft cycle based on scouts who really like him. And then some people think, oh, he's a reliever. So why are we going to take a high school reliever in the first? So, like, the range... In, in opinions, it's prob- I would guess is greater for Spino. And I would imagine that's probably true for most pitchers over hitters. And actually, I have the next question, but yeah, I actually did want to throw that out there. I did hear yeah. that Fernandez comp, a harder throwing Fernandez comp mm-hmm. on Spino. And that, I mean, after seeing him and hearing that comp, it really helped me to buy in so much on him. Yeah. I wanted to put that out there because... At least now, I know I'm not the only person hearing that. Yeah, and I don't think you're wrong to be so in on Espino at all. I just think that, like, from an industry perspective, it's worth knowing what they think. But, yeah, I mean, I really like him personally, too. He's one of my favorite pitchers in the class. So, and this next question is actually about the arms. So the prep righty arms have been all (laughs) this spring. Espino started out as the top prep arm. Matthew Allen and Quinn Priester have been top guys, and I know that Brennan Malone is ranked really high. And this doesn't even mention the recent attention Jack Leiter gained with his uh, temporary velocity spike or the talented prep teammates from Texas, Matthew Thompson and J.J. Ghost. I mean, right now, any of us can go over to Baseball America and see how they're actually ranked. But in your own personal opinion here, who do you think will be the best prep pitcher out of this right-handed group to come out of this class long term and why? Long term, we've had a number of conversations actually about this in the office just because this is something Matt Eddy, who's, who's my boss, one of the editors at Baseball America has looked into. He really looks at this stuff from like an analytical perspective and like a track record perspective, which demographics pan out, which don't. 
And we've had a lot of conversations about Jack Leiter. He's obviously the son of Al Leiter, so he's got big league bloodlines. But what excites me about Jack is that if you're looking at pure pitch ability, this is probably the best guy in the high school class. He really has a great understanding of what he's doing with all of his pitches. He's got a high spin curveball. And I think you mentioned his velocity spike. Um, he was in, I think he was in this top group in between this Allen and Espino range, probably for the last maybe month, two months in the draft cycle. He's been thought of as one of the best pitchers in the class for a while, but he's got a, an above average or plus fastball. He's got a plus curve, excuse me, a plus curveball, high spin rate curve that he can really land in the zone. He can expand the zone. He can manipulate the pitch. He's added a slider that's a solid average or above average pitch. He's shown feel for a changeup in the past. And I think he's a guy who, if he was a couple inches taller, I think he's six foot, six one, something like that, I think he'd be talked about in a much different light. But again, he does have that short right-handed high school pitcher track record to go against. But if I had to take one just because of the pitchability, I would probably go with him. I actually have a quick follow-up before the next question on Leiter because I I agree that like in terms of like Arsenal right now, you don't have to really project some of his stuff because you kind mm-hmm. of know what you can you, – you know he's going to do some things well. You don't have to kind of guess at it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, what, we, what the rumors have been swirling around, and we've been kind of hearing the same thing, is that he's asking for big-time money to get away from his Vanderbilt commitment. Is mm-hmm. he going to be picked high enough and get enough money to sign out of this draft class? Yeah, he's probably the biggest risk at this point to not make it to campus just because, I mean, like you said, the signing the signing bonus is very high. Um, and again, when we're talking about these high school pitchers, the industry as a whole, as the draft gets closer, those guys get shifted down boards just because of the risk with them. So when you add on uh, the signability and the Vanderbilt commitment, it gets tougher. Uh, there are some teams that have some money that could potentially do it. And at, at some point, uh, if the money is there, I'm sure the kid is going to sign, but I don't know what exactly what the number is. Uh, I'm sure a lot of teams are a little wary of that just because you don't want to take the kid and end up not having the pick and have to deal with all of that. But, I mean, yeah, at this point, he's definitely the biggest risk to to not sign, and, and there's a chance he ends up at Vanderbilt, and in three years is a top-ten pick. Fair enough. So uh, the, the, when we're looking at this college draft class, well, on both sides, whether it just be pitchers, but more, mm-hmm. but more often than not hitters, it's filled with breakout performances, whether it's J.J. Blade kind of like founding his, finding his power stroke and hitting a bunch of home runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he's not even in play, going to be in play when the Braves pick. Uh, and to, to like Cody Hosey, am I pronouncing his last name right? Yeah, Cody Hosey. I think yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, and then uh, Hunter Bishop is another guy who's kind of broken out from mm-hmm. like having let – these are guys that have broken out from having less than optimal track records to being some of the best hot hitters in, co- in college right now. Mm-hmm. How much do you ding their their stock and how much do scouts ding their stocks for mm-hmm. the, like those freshman and sophomore numbers that haven't been particularly great, mm-hmm. uh, especially for a guy like Hosey who like is coming from like a lower-level conference anyway? Yeah, I think I would separate Bladé from that just because he did hit well previously, but you mentioned it. it's more the power spike that turned Bladé from like a back of the first or middle of the first to like a no-doubt like top-five pick. So his his track record of actually just hitting is good. He always had raw power and just finally started tapping into it more. So, sure. so I think I would separate that from Hunter Bishop and, and Cody Hosey. But I think uh, it, they do definitely get dinged, and that's why I think Blade is safely ahead of these guys and Hunter Bishop. The thing, the argument with Hunter Bishop is that his tool set is comparable or better to Blade's. So you could definitely make that case. But like you, like you said, his his track record at Arizona State is not nearly as good as what Blade's is. He made some mechanical adjustments. I think that's that's a little bit 
that's why teams are a little bit more excited about Bishop is because they've seen physical changes that they can kind of attribute uh, this recent success to. I think that's a lot, a little bit easier to buy into than if a guy just starts doing it all of a sudden. You have something to point to. Um, with Hosey, again, that that is going to be the question. He kind of came out of nowhere, like you said, he didn't hit for this kind of power previously, and he's from a smaller school. Um, what kind of helps him is like you go and you see mechanically, he does everything really well. Uh, so I think from a scouting perspective, a, a lot of people aren't too concerned about it at the range he's going to be taken. But some teams value history and track record more than others. Some teams are more willing to just take a risk on a guy. Uh, it all gets factored in. I don't know if I answered your question, Eric, but I tried. No, oh, no, no. That's, <laughs> there's only so much you can, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's, yeah. it's, it's, it's done. There's a, it's like a, a variation. It's a yeah, for sure. Yeah. And some teams are going to care more than others. It's just the way mm-hmm. it's going to be. Um, all right, Grav, you're up. I kind of feel bad because he said very sad things about him, and now I'm going to kind of railroad him a little bit more. Uh, how concerned are you with Hunter Bishop's uh, last month of play? Like, he's done pretty poorly against Friday and Saturday starters outside of mm-hmm. one particular game, and he's striking out in almost half of his at-bats. Like, is it scary to you? Like, are, is there too much risk involved with him despite that tool set? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a valid question to ask. I don't know if I have the best answer for you. I mean, if you look at his overall body of work this season, it's still pretty good. I know he, he did really well at the start, so maybe that eases some concerns. He's hit better in conference than a guy like Cameron Meisner has um, at Missouri, so I think you do have something to point to. Uh, but it is concerning. The strikeouts have always been a big question for him. I think he's something like a 25% strikeout rate guy. But when you look at his tools, I think if you're confident in your player development, you can do a lot with those tools. Maybe you think it's only a few tweaks he needs to make. Maybe it's an approach adjustment that he needs to make rather than some kind of me- mechanical tweak. Maybe it's just getting more reps in this new new setup he has at the plate, kind of a simplified approach. Um, but again, there is risk. He is one of the riskier height, or excuse me, one of the riskier college uh, bats because of the strikeout rate and because of his previous track record and what he's kind of doing near the end. But at some point, you look at the tools and you think it's worth the, worth the risk. All right, Matt. Last question goes kind to you. Kind of like Ryan Howard. <laughs> God, I hope he's not hiring Ryan Howard. All right, Matt, you're up. Hey, hey, Ryan Howard is very good. What are we talking about here? God, how the mighty have fallen. You haven't even you haven't looked at a Baseball Reference War page in a while. Oh no, I'm talking about Ryan Howard from the Office. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right, Matt, you're up. So my question is super early, 2020 draft. Right now, who would you put as the number one guy on your board for 2020? That's a great question. Okay. Um, so I think three guys come to mind really quickly for me. Um, two college guys and one prep guy. I'll go with the prep guy first just because we already have a draft hashtag for him. Uh, that's uh, Pete Crow Armstrong, uh, who's out in Southern California. He's kind of the head of a really good Southern California prep class next year. He is a center fielder with a plus-plus running ability, great field to hit. He's kind of like a, uh, this is a lazy comp and might not be accurate, but kind of like a Bryce Terang that plays center field and is a little bit more physical as far as where his hit tool kind of is at this point. Um, I got to see him a little bit this spring at the NHSI, and he he just crushes the ball every single time he comes up to the plate. So I think he's going to be maybe one of the best prep hitters in the class. Um, then you have Spencer Torkelson. Who's the big right-handed hitting first baseman uh, at Arizona State with Hunter Bishop? He has absolutely stupid power. I got to see him last summer with um, 
the college national team as well. And the power of this kid is just ridiculous. He set Arizona State's um, freshman home run record, breaking Barry Bonds. And then the third, Emerson Hancock at Georgia. The stuff he's shown this year is better than anyone in the 2019 class. If he's eligible this year, he would be the first pitcher taken. Uh, he dealt with injuries through, throughout this spring that'll be kind of interesting to see if those resurface and if he can get a, a full season. But his stuff is it's pluses across the board. He's been one of the best pitchers in the country. So those three would be probably the, the guys. If I had to pick one, um, I guess I would go with Hancock, maybe. Well, I mean, it's really early, so you know, you're know you not locked in on anything right now. All right, Carlos. Well, that's all the questions we had for you. Greatly appreciate everything that you've you taken the time to talk to us. I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit after the draft where, uh, you know, most of the, mostly, most likely we'll be excited to have some new prospects to talk about. Uh, it's very possible that we'll be dealing with Matt while he's in mourning. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's just kind of how it goes. Um, do you have anything else coming, like anything that's coming out in terms of, you know, articles that you're excited about that are coming mm-hmm. out really soon that you want to plug before we let you go? Yeah, so we've got a new mock coming out Friday. I know people are obsessed with mock drafts, so we've been doing a lot of reporting for that. Um, pretty much every day the last few weeks we've been writing draft reports, so we're going to continue filling out the BA500 and tweaking it here and there as we get feedback and uh, uh, hear about. It's kind of a little late for pop-up guys, but there are a few guys who are going to jump on the list uh, when we update it next. But, uh, yeah, other than that, after after the BA500 is fully complete, we'll start rolling out state lists. You can get a kind of a sense of where the strengths and weaknesses are geographically throughout the country. Um, and then after that, it'll just be reporting to see, uh, see how the draft is going to unfold. Uh, JJ Cooper always has some cool draft stories as far as like themes and demographics, stuff like that. And then I haven't even touched on all the, the minor league and college stuff that the guys are doing. I honestly don't even know what they're up to at this point. I've been bunkered down, but just check out the website. That's what I would say. Subscribe if you're interested in any of this at all. We really appreciate the support. Yeah, I'm just going to echo that. I honestly think that if anyone has any meaningful interest in the minor leagues or the draft in general, that the first thing they should do is just to subscribe to Baseball America because, one, it's not that expensive. You probably you spend more on that than it's like a fast food meal, uh, and you'll do it once a month, and you'll be get access to all sorts of crazy content. And, you know, for everyone that, pay, that complains about paywalls and things like that, some of that I can understand if, like, there's only, like, two articles a month that would be even remotely interesting to you. But Baseball America, it's constantly turning out content. There's always something interesting to read on there, and it's it's the best value that you can get. Uh, and you, you honestly, we, we rely on Carlos and JJ and all those guys for so much information because they're doing a lot of great reporting. They're, they're, they have guys on the ground that are, like, getting the, the scouting reports and getting the information as well. It's just just go to BaseballAmerica.com and just subscribe. You won't regret it, I promise. Um, so thanks again to all... Thanks again to Carlos for coming on. Thanks again to Garav and Matt for making the time to continue to record the podcast. Flop. <laughs> Man, just called you flop. Listen here, like, Carlos. Okay. <laughs> I don't know you how this is me attacking you. I was attacked first. I just had to defend my honor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll continue this feud uh, off the recording mics. But thanks again to everyone for supporting the podcast since it's come back. We really appreciate it. Uh, numbers have been crazy, and we really appreciate everyone for taking the time to listen. Make sure you're subscribing to the Talking Chop, uh, the Talking Chop podcast on iTunes. That will give you access to both that podcast, which has Brad Roland, and you can get all of his Ozzy Albies trade proposals on that, and it also gets you this podcast <laughs> as well. Uh, so thanks again, everyone, and until next time, we'll see you on the road.